Would you create a perfect world in which everyone would be happy? But in order to create that world, an innocent little child had to die. And that's, I mean, that's a really, <laughs> I mean, that's a tough question, right? Like, would you create the most happiness for the most people if just one person had to suffer? Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. In today's conversation, I got a chance to sit down with Mitchell Hawley, a longtime friend of mine and an instructor with the Memoria Press Online Academy. He teaches moral philosophy, which is a passion of his and something that's been really instrumental to his personal journey. So we talked about that as well as the role of moral philosophy in the educational process. If you enjoy this conversation, then please subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Now, enjoy our conversation. You've been prepping for this conversation your entire life. Yeah, it's led to this moment, this conversation. You know, one thing we've been talking about is that you and I have known each other for a very long time. Right. More than a decade. Yeah. And in some ways, every along the way, every decision we made in our lives led us to this path kind of in friendship. I mean, we were always friends the whole time. We were always talking about what the next thing we were going to do was going to be. Sure. And then, but also kind of just independently making choices. Yeah. And we ended up in the same place. It's, that's amazing. Yeah. And one of the, I think, kind of unique things about it is that both of us landed here in a lot of ways as a home away from home. We had, hmm. through our lives, been formed by different influences, some of them the same, some of them different, um, shaped the way we thought, shaped the way that we were attempting to try and live our lives. And then we come to a place like this, a company like this, where we find that, wow, these people have a lot of the same ideas we do. We can really plug in here. And we, in the same way that we made all these decisions leading up to it, it just kind of happened. And it's, it's amazing to be formed for most of your life and then to find a place that, oh, I can, there's a job that I can continue to, to pursue this path of development and it could continue to grow and think these thoughts and, um, and articulate, and, uh, you know, a, a better and, and more, more helpful explanations of things. And it's, yeah, it's just amazing that we both found a place that is, like you said, a, a home from away from home. And your path specifically, you came just to be the Greek specialist at first because you're really good at Greek and you were working on the Greek curriculum. And then over time, you took on more and more with the online academy. Mm -hmm. um, and that seemed to be something you really enjoyed. And then opened up the opportunity to talk about moral philosophy, do the moral philosophy class this year, which um, that's really what I think we, I want to talk about mainly with you is moral yeah. philosophy. Because it has broader themes, the that idea of moral philosophy, which to a lot of people sounds super esoteric, yeah, super sure. out there, abstract. Mm -hmm. But you think it's super important and you think that it's actually your kind of journey through thinking about moral philosophy or some people talk about ethics, behavior, that that is your views on it have brought you to where you are today and part of what made MP a uh, home away from home. So- Tell me a little bit about that. What was your view of moral philosophy as a young person in education? What was your view of ethics and how did it change? Yeah, well, uh, your view of moral philosophy or ethics um, has huge ramifications for how you think about education and how you think about the education of small children and the, form and the formation that happens in the life of every child. Um, but I can probably say with a, I mean, you know, but I, I do, <laughs> we, we grew up together. 
Um, I didn't. I was not always the fan of the study of ethics that I am today. Uh, I mean, the classic example that I could think of is um, I distinctly remember uh, your mom, Maestra uh, Saxon, the Spanish yeah, teacher at our high school. That's exactly right. She uh, she turned me in one time because I was skipping school. I think I had a, a study hall at the end of the day, and uh, you know, so I was not really into the the, the study of good and right <laughs> behavior when I when we were in high school. Um, yeah, that was a that was an interesting moment. Shout out to your mother; uh, she was yeah. always a great teacher. But uh, um, so, long story short, as a, as a as a kid growing up in high school, then moving into college, I was certainly not interested in the study of ethics. To me, it was it was just a science of rulemaking, and growing up the way that I did, I wasn't really interested in the science of rulemaking. I wasn't really interested in this sort of um, cold, abstract study of how you should live in any given situation. And in matter of fact, in terms of modern moral philosophy, a lot of modern moral philosophy is still just that. It's still just this cold scientific approach to the study of rules, um, which is such, I mean, it, it's such a departure from the ancient view of ethics uh, from the Greeks and the Romans. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, we get there um, through philosophy, and we, I don't think we always realize that these philosophers who are writing these books that the average person isn't reading, they're having a trickle-down effect into the classroom and into the institutional policies that run our classrooms and in the governmental policies that run our classrooms. And so you kind of are just a product, not necessarily of no one you knew probably is actually reading these books and digesting them, but it's just those ideas have floated to the surface in terms of how people are deciding what's good and what's bad. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, modern, um, you know, philosophy does have a trickle down effect in our culture, right? So the, the, the type of thinking that occurs at the very top of cultural development trickles down into the, 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 a, a popular version of that in school policy and, you know, the sort of classes that students should take, um, you know, a great example of this is, you know, ancient ethics was always concerned about this idea of what does it mean to be good? What is the good? What is the chief good? What is the highest good? You know, and, 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 and as a result, you know, if we can identify what the highest good of a human is, what is the, what are the, what is the chief end of being a human? Um, then, you know, we can, ancient ethics would try to, to outline how a person should live to achieve that good. But if you reject that idea, let's say that humans uh, don't have intrinsic natures or they don't have uh, – we can't define what's good because what's good is going to be – for you might be what's different than what's good for me. Then maybe modern philosophy has kind of decided that you know maybe we shouldn't ask the question, what is what does it mean to be a good human? Instead, we should just ask, what does it mean to have good behavior or to have good actions? And so what we see is in, in the history of philosophy is this shift away from moral agents focusing on what it means to be a good human and towards good actions. And so if our focus is just on actions, on activity, how we can help people act rightly according to what we think is, is as a culture is good, then you have, you know, skills-based education. You know, you have a whole education system built on on not training someone who to, who to, or training students uh, to be a certain way in the world to live well, you're training them how to do certain things. 
because we want to leave up to anyone to decide who they should be in the world. Far be it from us as educators to tell students who to be. I mean, you're saying that when you look at a person and you're, if if there isn't an agreement that we are, you know, what it means to be human, then you have to start quantifying actions in a certain way. And a lot of times economic factors are what are easiest to quantify what people are and how they should be. And so then what's the best way we can equip our students to make the most money and to be the most useful to society becomes actually a major ethical question for our society, even though that's two steps removed from how the ancients con- conceived of ethics. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and so then the great challenge to us as educators is to try to bring that back, is to try to say, okay, if we don't want to have our education primarily be about the, in, the inculcation of skills um, in the workplace or whatever, then not that we're going to exclude the study of skills. I mean, that's what the liberal arts are. You know, the liberal arts are skills. Um, but we want to ask more questions than just that. We want to also begin to ask, what does it mean to be a good human? What does it mean to to flourish? How to, how to live well in the world? And that that takes us ultimately back to the Greeks and the Romans. And so before we get to the Greeks and Romans, you, you've also pointed out to me before that when we say the word ethics, a lot of times the thing that comes into our mind is that, you know, textbook situation where we're reading about these interesting hypotheticals or, you know, Batman when there are two trolleys and one of them is going to kill one person, one of them is going to kill a hundred people. Yeah. And that's everything that we conceive of as ethics. You, you think that's a problem. What's the problem with that? And what is that indicative of with our culture's view of ethics? Well, it's indicative of a lot of things. Uh, but it, I think it, it shows on a basic level that our concern is no longer with moral agents, moral people, but with moral actions. We're, we're primarily concerned about um, a science that's going to govern how every person should live in every situation. And that that was the goal of the Enlightenment, right? Is that, you know, Immanuel Kant and, and the, the moral philosophy that that kind of comes from, from that tradition was primarily concerned with a, a cold kind of mathematical approach um, to, to rulemaking so that in any given situation, every person in, who would ever live would know exactly what to do. But what you find is that these rules that were created by guys like Immanuel Kant and others were really divorced from any sort of definition of the true, the good, and the beautiful. They were defi- they were d- divorced from the broader conversation um, about the natures of humans and the natures of things and that, that things exist um, uh, to serve certain ends and they have there are certain activities that they perform. Um, and so as a result, we have this kind of disembodied approach to ethics where we, we, we abstract from the life of an individual certain situations. You know, this is where you have the famous moral dilemmas, right? Like the trolley illustration, where if you, if you take a person out of, uh, you know, out of any sort of life that he would live and put him in this one illustration, this one situation where he's on a train and it's going towards one person and it could kill one person. But if you flip the switch, it could kill a hundred people. Is it, is it right or wrong for you to flip the switch? Should you flip the switch or should you not flip the switch? You know, so that, but how many, how many students are going to find themselves in that type of situation? You know, and that's the, that's one of the downsides I think of having this sort of taking all these dilemmas and making our moral philosophies kind of, 
our moral philosophy uh, kind of geared towards answering those towards those sorts of questions, because that's really separated from the broader question of how should I live in the world? How should I live when I'm not driving the trolley? You know, how should I live when I'm reading books or when I'm, you know, cleaning the dishes, you know, or, or how should I live when I'm walking the dog? Like maybe, maybe moral philosophy has, has things to say about a life, a total life and not just key situations. Yeah. So as we kind of articulate, you didn't just realize there were problems with the world's conception of, of moral philosophy and how the zeitgeist often controls it. But you, you also started digging into the ancients and seeing how they gave us categories for navigating the world. Like you were just referencing, you know, something you've, you and I have talked about a lot, um, theoretica and phronesis and these ideas that come from Aristotle. So what is the answer? How did you start kind of changing in your way of viewing the world? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like I said, growing up, I was not interested in the study of, of ethics. I, I conceived of it as the study of rules. And then I think I went through maybe, I guess you could probably say three stages of development. It's probably an arbitrary number, but just to, just to be able to talk about it, you know, at, at first I was always a lover of great books and I always read a lot. And what you find in good works of literature are essentially the same sort of moral dilemmas that the trolley illustration is supposed to illustrate. But those moral dilemmas are placed in the context of a story in the, in a narrative of, of a character who, you know, has is good or bad, prudent or courageous. And they are for, they're put in these situations and then they have to act. And then you get to see um, in, in, you know, let's say Robin Hood, for example, you have this strong, courageous person um, who is faced with an ethical dilemma. Does he steal from the rich to give to the poor? Right. Um, that's not just some sort of disembodied question. That's a question that relates to how does a good, strong and courageous person, um, how does he help the poor? You know, what is the most, what is the most ethical thing for him to do? So, I mean, when you come across these moral dilemmas in the context of a narrative, in the context of a life of, a, of, of people, um, and you, you're, you're forced to kind of ask different questions about how you make decisions, um, because you're forced not to ask, not to focus primarily on the, the, on the decision, but on the person who's making the decision. Yeah. Cause even with that illustration, kind of our modern mind, like goes immediately to like, Okay, but should we steal? If a person <laughs> could steal from rich, the, and that's that's totally not the point. Well, the point that you're making is, what about Robin Hood? This person with this narrative, what does that show us about what it means to be human, about the soul, and then the aggregate of those of those souls that we immerse ourselves in change us? Yes. In other words, the study of of how you should live, whether you should do X or Y, should not be separated from who the person making the decision. Mm. Each individual person and the character that forms that person comes into the equation with how or why they should do X or Y, which is why, you know, different people in different situations could result in different ethical choices, right? That would that'd be all that would be fine because it is, you know, individual people that are in that are who are living their own lives and have different responsibilities who are making certain decisions. So I'd say that's the first thing. You know, I this education that I received by just reading the good books, the the books of the Western canon. Yeah. Um, and on that on that point, I one book that I've always loved that makes this point is called Defensive Poetry by this medieval mm -hmm. um, writer named yeah. Philip Sidney. And his argument is that 
there are three different ways you could theoretically teach virtue. You could teach it through history. You could teach it through um, ethics, the cold science of ethics, yeah. or you could teach it through literature. And through a series of arguments, he argues literature is the best way to teach virtue. And so there's historical precedent even in literature for the argument that you're making. Yeah. And, and some books are going to do this, you know, better than others, you know, um, and that's why I think the books that are central to the Western canon um, have, they play a central role in the history of the West, primarily because of these sort of um, bringing to a head these sort of questions. I mean, a great example, just to build off of what you're saying is um, like the brothers Karamazov, the whole book really is built around a moral dilemma. And that moral dilemma is, um, I can't remember the, the, these Russian names are always hard to remember, but essentially one of the brothers looks to the other brother and says, would you, would you create a perfect world in which everyone would be happy? But in order to create that world, an innocent little child had to die. And that's, I mean, that's a really, <laughs> I mean, that's a tough question, right? Like, would you create the most happiness for the most people if just one person had to suffer? And if you're a utilitarian and you're focused in your ethical theories are kind of filtered through that's what the things that are the most useful, then your obvious answer is yes. <laughs> you know, the most good for the most people. If one person would suffer, then, you know, then everyone else can live a, a perfectly happy life. And the book answers this in like a really unique way. Um, and it, it's not at all, and it connects it with the Christian story. And so it helps you think that maybe the utilitarian approach to ethics, to that sort of decision-making is actually not sufficient to answer this question. Maybe you need something bigger and broader, like a Christian view of ethics that's going to come in and answer this question. And, you know, I don't want to give away the ending, um, of course, but, um, you know, it ends in a very fascinating way, um, in relationship to that particular question. But that's just one example of how, the books of the Western canon, uh, the, these great books, put us in situation where we're forced to ask ethical questions. And that these books do that sort of ethical formation in the lives of children way better than modern philosophy does. Yeah. Because modern philosophy takes those ethical dilemmas and takes them out of the lives of real people, or in this case, fictional people. Um, but, that, but it is only in the context of a life, a life well-lived, that these ethical questions are brought to um, any sort of resolution. Yeah. And so and other important books that help us in thinking about moral philosophy are not just the great literature, but also the great philosophical works. How have you been helped by Aristotle? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you're getting ahead of me just because, I mean, if I were going to just outline the, the three kind of ways that I kind of, in my own education, how I've kind of come to where I am, you know, the first would be the great books. And then the second one would be an education in the classics, um, Aristotle and philosophy or Aristotle and Plato, right? Because Aristotle is going to make this argument that the chief end of man is what he would call udamania or udamon, meaning human flourishing or happiness. And if that is the chief goal of what it means to be human, then perhaps the, our study of ethics needs to relate to how we can live in a flourishing way, how we can achieve human flourishing. And that was such a mind, I mean, that was such a, a kind of a Copernican revolution in my own thinking. And it took everything that I'd been reading, all these themes in literature, um, and and began to give them, you know, real philosophical substance when I changed my thinking in that way. 
And so now I, I think one of the most important things that ancient philosophy gives us is this shift back to what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be to function well as a human? What does it mean to achieve excellence um, or uh, virtue as a human? Um, and that is functioning well in the world. And functioning well in the world means that the study of ethics in Aristotle and in the, with the Greeks was always a study of how to live well, the art of living well in the world. Um, yeah, it's funny how that, that question shifts the, the focus from how to do the right thing to how to live well. It's answering the same question ultimately, but that shift in focus, a subtle shift in focus broadens our minds when it comes to what does it mean to be a good person, to to be the person God made us to be. It's actually way more all-encompassing than how a lot of people consider it when it's just obey these 10 strictures that are either stipulated by my society or my right. company or my uh, school or or whatever. It's actually more about figuring out how to be excellent in whatever tradition or or pathway you're on. Yeah, I think it's way more compelling than people understand because, you know, and I think a great example of this, I mean, to go back to the classics would be the Hellenistic moral philosophers. So those, those moral philosophers who lived and wrote right around the time of the Hellenistic period. So when Alexander the Great comes in and, you know, what is that, 333, um, and he conquers most of the known, the known world, um, and then pretty much all of the world is Greek. And so what you have at that time are all these people, um, you know, in the, in the Greek empire at the time who were kind of disconnected from, you know, how they grew up, um, and they didn't have a, a small, and no longer were they individual city-states, but they were now one big empire. So they were kind of d displaced. And so the Hellenistic philosophers were, were primarily concerned about this question of, of how can I be happy in the context where, you know, things aren't going my way or when, or when I no longer have just, it's not just me and my family and my relatives who lives in the, in the city state, right? It's now, we now have to be subservient to this broader agenda of the nations, right? So you had all these more Hellenistic moral philosophers who are kind of trying to address almost treating moral philosophy as a type of therapy. Hmm. Uh, and that's why, I mean, a lot of people call them the, the therapeutic um, uh, from the therapeutic, from the Greek word therapuo, uh, um, meaning, you know, to heal. Um, these moral philosophers are called the, you know, the therapeutic uh, moral philosophers because they were concerned primarily about how can I be happy? How can I, um, you know, not suffer? in the world. And I think those are the same exact questions that we are asked today. We're, you know, we live in a world that's filled with, with anxieties and pains, um, with, a and, and there's so many avenues of, that the culture tries to address that question, um, without really getting at the heart of, of how me as a person can achieve human flourishing and happiness. Um, but the Hellenistic moral philosophers were deeply concerned about this question. And so one of the themes that you find all throughout the Hellenistic moral philosophers was this idea of the art of living well. And they kept coming back to try to articulate that. And the art of living well essentially boiled down to um, being a virtuous person. I mean, the Stoics were famous for this, right? It, it was almost a, if you were a virtuous person, you would be happy. Regardless of any sort of external situation, if you, if you cultivated those excellences of the person, those excellence of the spirit, those virtues, 
then that's how you would live well in the world and achieve some sort of human flourishing. Which sets you up for, you know, the greatest philosopher uh, of all time, uh, who is extremely important in this conversation, right? And that is Jesus Christ and, and what he teaches us. And I think this is a really important point in that your focus on all these other aspects of kind of shaping your view of moral philosophy were not divorced or disinterested in Christian tradition. In in fact, it helped kind of grow your Christian faith and and enriched it um, in a way where sometimes people think of Christians as the only people guarding the ethical tradition, right. um, when in reality, our, our, even our Christian traditions need to be bolstered with more robust thinking about how to be virtuous people. Right, right. I mean, exactly. I mean, so my education in the great books, my education in the classics, helped me ask good questions so that when I came to the academic study of the Bible, I was able to ask good questions about the greatest philosopher who's ever lived. That's Jesus. You know, I mean, just to, to illustrate this point, um, you think about the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapters five through seven. Um, what you essentially have there, especially in the Beatitudes at the very beginning, is an invitation to live a certain way. Um, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, right? It's what he's trying to get at there uh, in the Beatitudes is he's trying to invite his followers, his disciples to live a certain way in the world so that they can achieve human flourishing, so that they can be happy. So you could kind of think of the Sermon on the Mount as if you want to be happy, read the Sermon on the Mount, because that is an invitation to all the disciples of Christ to live in accordance with the patterns that God has placed in creation. And when you bring your life into conformity with with how God has created the world, with, with how God has instilled things with natures, um, then you will, you'll, that's what fl human flourishing looks like, bringing your life into conformity with God's intention for how the world would be. And, um, and, but I was only equipped to be able to come to the Bible and, and, and discern uh, and, and, and kind of read that well, those ethical passages well, when I was kind of shaped by all of these confluence of factors, right? All of these things came to bear um, at different times. You know, I, I kind of divorced them in sort of a, a one, two, three way, but it was probably, it was all of these things kind of coming together, um, you know, over the course of, you know, several years that, that, that were the most formative things. So each one of these, th these things have to have a role, I think, in education, right? You have to be educated in the great books because they, they, uh, they bring these moral questions and they place them in the lives of people and they force you to confront that by reading it, right? And then you have to know the classics. You have to know how the tradition of the West has articulated these things so that you can know, for example, why ancient forms of ethical theory were so important and so different from modern versions of ethical theories, right? So you have to, you know, the great books, um, uh, the classics, but then, you know, you, it, I, as a Christian, you cannot ask these moral questions apart from a Christian worldview. I just, I just don't see how you can arrive at any sort of um, proper ethical reasoning um, without, without a Christian worldview. Matter of fact, I know this to be the case because that was exactly what Immanuel Kant tried to do in the Enlightenment, and that's what led us to where we are today. Because Immanuel Kant's chief goal was to, he didn't want a moral theory that would rely on any sort of Christianity or religion, because not everyone's going to agree that Christianity is right. Even though Immanuel Kant was, you know, a pietist, you know, he was, he was a very conservative person, right? He's a very religious person. 
but he wanted to make an ethical system that wasn't dependent upon that. And that led to where we are today. Yeah. And it's convenient that your three points, uh, you know, are all found if by classes you can enroll in on the Memorial Press Online Academy. <laughs> That's very true. We offer a lot of literature classes. We have the classical studies. I, and, you and teach I, Bible, you teach yeah, moral philosophy. That's right. You can yeah enroll in the moral <laughs> philosophy class today. And, uh, you know, we had, we just started in our week three, I think. Um, so we're going over manual car right now. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I, this, I mean, that goes back to your point about at the very beginning that, you know, finding a, a home away from home. So yeah. these, these are the things that have, have shaped me and have brought me to a greater, uh, more fruitful understanding of, of ethics of moral philosophy. But these are the exact same things that we're in the business of doing yeah. at Memorial Press, right? Yeah. Whether it's on the publishing side of things with our curriculum um, and our literature guides or where it's, or whether it's in the online academy where you can, uh, you know, we offer courses in the classics and yeah. in moral philosophy. And um, so it really does feel, I mean, I know you and I talk about this all the time. We feel blessed to have arrived at a place like this that shares so much of this worldview and even helps us think well about it. I mean, I've learned so much just being a part of the Memorial Press family um, because that's helped me refine how these ideas relate to the education of young children yeah. uh, and moral formation over the course of years um, and, and how we can do that in the context of, of a school. And I know that you could literally go on for decades probably <laughs> on this conversation, sure. but uh, I think that's all the time we have. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Shane. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. If you like the show and would like to stay connected, consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We greatly appreciate any support for our show and ask that if you liked the episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.